This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we and our guests are on this show to discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be Dr. Chaim Marzuka and Dr. Iyad Abo Irmele. They are the chief physician and a resident pediatric physician at Caritas Baby Hospital in Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem, not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, but Bethlehem, West Bank, Palestine in the Middle East. And I thought we'd do something a little different with this first segment, Andrew, because I think there's a lack of awareness about what's really going on over in the Holy Land. There, I, I completely agree because, I mean, the main in, information sources for many listeners, I assume, and I'm, I'm including myself in this group, you've got the secular media. You've yes. got an occasional, maybe Christian or Catholic article that you read, and you've got the folks that bring the olive wood during Lent and <laughs> yes, Advent. You know, and so that is frequently the sum total of our knowledge on the Middle East. So I, I think this is our first international interview, too. It is. And I did this interview on a recent pilgrimage to the Holy Land where I took my 17-year-old daughter, Monica, and I thought, while there, why not probe and find out what's going on? And, and what's interesting is that this is the only pediatric hospital in the West Bank. And I didn't understand these terms, West Bank and, and Palestine. You know, Palestine is now, it actually derives from the word Philistines from way back when. But Palestine is now used to refer to the area that Israel claims that has been reserved for Arab Palestinians apart from Israel. And there are different laws in these areas than there are in Israel. And, and there's really kind of a, a two-class system. The people in Israel live much higher on the hog than the people in Palestine. Uh, it's multiple times the average income in those areas. And so if you look at Israel, you've got Israel you know, proper, uh, with Tel Aviv and West Jerusalem. But then you've got area that was actually part of the country of Jordan until 1967, when it was known as Transjordan. And uh, part of that, that Israel took over during the Six-Day War in June of 1967, is known as the West Bank. That is those lands that border the western bank of the Jordan River. And, of course, the Jordan River starts in the north of Israel, uh, Mount, Mount Hermon, and then goes through and into the Sea of Galilee. And then it exits on the south end of the Sea of Galilee— and heads south, and it empties into the Dead Sea. And, of course, the Dead Sea has nothing that empties out of it. So you've got this, you know, north-south, or flowing from north to south river. And so to the west of that, there is the West Bank. And this is a Palestinian territory. And then on the western side of the West Bank lands, you have the wall, the 35 to 40-foot tall wall separating Israel from Palestine. Wow. That's that's actually a very good geographical description because a lot of these lands are just foreign concepts. We've heard the terms, but the way you describe it makes, makes it like we can understand being there. I'm trying. And uh, what I've seen is that the size of the West Bank is about the size of the state of Delaware in area. And in terms of population, it's just over 3 million, which is about the population of Iowa or Connecticut. And it lies at about the same latitude as El Paso, Texas does. Okay. I can understand the, the temperature there probably then. Do they get do they have winters and summers similar to we would at this latitude? Similar to that latitude in the United States, yes. It's okay. rare for snow occasionally happens, and if it does, it doesn't last very long. Uh, it's very hilly terrain, not many lakes. I mean, other than seeing the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, we saw no other lakes the whole time I've been there. So there's not a lot of water there besides the, the Mediterranean. And the Jordan River right now, because they've sucked off so much of the freshwater for drinking, is maybe 15 to 20 feet wide. Oh, wow. It's amazing. We went to the baptismal site which of Jesus, which is traditionally believed to be on the Jordanian side, and hardly anybody you know, visits from that side. All the visitors were on the other side. But we're standing there. We could have walked across in the water. It shows uh, so shallow to the other side. And there's actually a little 
police barricade in between the sides of the river at the baptismal site. Wow. And there are Israelis with machine guns, you know, guarding to make sure nobody walks either way across. When, when you were over there, Tom, did you feel safe throughout your trip? I did feel safe, but I felt like I was in a, a police state. There are so many checkpoints. And to go across the wall, many Palestinians only dream of crossing the wall to go into Jerusalem, even though they're only a couple miles away in Bethlehem. Are they not allowed to legally? They are not allowed to legally. You have to have the right kind of papers or passport, or many of these people are not allowed to have any kind of passport. They're like people without a nation. They're not allowed as an Israeli one. Some of them are allowed Jordanian ones because of the pre-1967 boundaries, but some of them are allowed no type of passport to travel. And so they're confined to this space really yeah. their whole life. Confined. And if, if you want to look worse, the other part of Palestine would be considered the Gaza Strip, which is in southwestern Israel, bordering Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea. That's a much tinier, narrower land where they are really constrained. And to add insult to this grave injury is since mid-1970s, they've had a, a settler's movement where Jews from around the world will come and they will purposely live on the high points, and there are a number of hills or lower mountains throughout Palestine, and set up Jewish enclaves, which actually have different laws than down at the bottom of the hills. They are allowed to drive on roads in Palestine that Palestinians are not allowed to drive on. They have 24-7 water, whereas most of the people... Uh, who are Palestinians, will get water one day a week and have to store it on the top of their houses in these black water tanks. And you see them everywhere. There's tanks on top of the houses because it really is a two-class system. And now there are about 200 of these settlements throughout Palestine. So you don't even feel like you're safe in your own country. And there's a lot of animosity, for obvious reasons, between the settlers who come from around the world to live in these Jewish communities and the Palestinian Arabs. Well, and, you know, this is really enlightening, I think, because the first time I've, I've heard a description like that, it came as a surprise to me, especially because here in America, we, we see a lot of really pro-Israel propaganda. Yes, and part of it, I think, is from going back to the Nazis and wanting to protect Certainly. The, the Israelis. Absolutely. Um, but then also, there's such a large amount of Jewish folks and people of Israeli heritage in America, they, they really carry a lot of political clout. We don't meet a lot of Palestinians in America. We don't. And, you know, going back to the founding of Caritas Baby Hospital, it happened after an event they call the Nakba in Arabic or the disaster or cataclysm. You know, in 1948, after the United Nations recognized Israel as a country, the Israelis displaced about 700,000 Palestinians from their homes in Israel, many in the Galilee area, just because they wanted the land and they didn't want these Arab communities. And many of them were Arab Christians. You know, most of them were Arab Muslims, but many were Arab Christians. And there was a fallacy that this was an empty land that the Jews from around the world were coming to occupy. And there was great disagreement among Jews themselves about whether to have a Jewish homeland or a Jewish state. And they ended up with a Jewish state. Whereas many, like including Martin Buber, the philosopher, and Albert Einstein, were in favor of a Jewish homeland, you know, sharing it with the people who were already there. So anyway, 700,000 Palestinians displaced from 400 to 600 towns and villages. And this led to a problem that was seen by a Swiss priest named Ernst Schneidrig. And a quote of his is that we helped the poorest of the poor in the best way we could and not once asked about race or religion, end quote, when establishing Caritas Baby Hospital. He said that the children of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, should not be denied qualified health care. So in, the, in 1952, they founded this hospital on a wing and a prayer in the needs of many people. That's, it's really amazing, but it almost had to be a Catholic, I think, because of the infighting between the cultures there. What, were you alluding to, Tom, that most of the Christians are Palestinians, not Israelis, in the Holy Land? Is that true? Only, actually, less than 2% of the people in Israel or in Palestine, both sides of the wall, are Christian. Less than 2%. Less than 2%. And are any of those folks also Israelis, or are they all within the Palestinian group? No, there are less than 2% of Israelis or citizens of Israel 
are Christian. I see. And just over half are Jewish and just under half are Muslim. So, for instance, the town of Nazareth is almost 100% Muslim community except for a small number of Catholics left. Bethlehem now only has about 15% Christians. Wow. Yeah, it's mostly Muslim, and now they have a Muslim mayor. You know, it used to always be a Christian mayor. And now people are leaving in droves. That would be the topic, you know, uh, for a later time. But the cost of living in the West Bank is almost as high as it is in the United States. Yet, the average physician who works at Caritas Baby Hospital makes less than my average nurse makes. Oh, my goodness. It's just incredible. They make about $36,000 a year as a pediatrician working in this hospital. And uh, this hospital runs 90% on donations. There's no health care insurance to speak of in the West Bank. So, for instance, Switzerland donates $5 million a year to the hospital, and Germany $4 million. And some other countries, including the U.S. and Italy, donate about a $1 million a year. Wow. So mainly subsisting off of external donations. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's not much money in the country, not much economy in the country. That's why when you're buying those olive wood things from people there, you are really helping to subsidize keeping Christians in the Holy Land. So hopefully that gives you an introduction to this fascinating interview you're going to hear in the next two segments of the show. But before we go to the break, I I want to pose our medical trivia question of the day. While The Wind in the Willows is a children's book published over 100 years ago in 1908, something other than wind has been found in willows and used for over 2,000 years as a medication and was started to be marketed widely over 100 years ago. A form of this medication accounts for over 44,000 tons of pills taken annually by people worldwide. What is this medication? Stay tuned when we come back on Dr. Doctor, where your hosts today, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, discuss trustworthy medical information for Catholics and everyone else. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you not from the stations of Redeemer Radio today, but from our first international interview in Palestine. I am at Caritas Baby Hospital, located in Bethlehem in the Central West Bank. And Caritas Baby Hospital is the only pediatric hospital in the West Bank or in Palestine. And over 1 million children, I understand, under the age of 14 years live here. Today with me today are the chief physician of Caritas Baby Hospital, Dr. Hia Marzuka, and a pediatric resident, uh, Dr. Ead Abarmelo Mela. Yes. Abarmela. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Yam. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Iam, uh, how did you become a physician? Uh, you know, in the United States, we, we know where we go to medical school. Where do you go to medical school? And, and how did you end up in Palestine? You know, I am um, coming from a Christian family with seven children. My father was a teacher, and he could not afford supporting us in university costs. So he was telling us, I would love that you study, but you have to take care to get scholarships. So the last year, I did all my best to study and to get a good note in order to get a scholarship. And I was lucky enough to be the second best in the German schools here. So I got a scholarship to Germany. And this was the best could happen to me. Otherwise, I could not afford the going abroad to study medicine. So did you know German language when you were in Palestine, or did you have to learn it when you went to school? I had to learn it exactly when I went to school, because we learned it, but it was just general few words. It was not enough. So you went to Germany for college and medical school, or just medical school? So in Germany, the system is like that. You study only medicine. Ah. It's not like you, you study bachelor and then pre-med and post-med, no. And then you did pediatric training in Germany also? Part of it, yes, yes. Very good. And Dr. Ayad, you grew up in what town in Palestine? I was born in Jerusalem and I grew up in Hebron. Finished my uh, high grade school and I went to Yemen. I studied uh, general medicine there. And after that, I uh, back here uh, to Palestine. I, I did my internship in Hebron 
and then I become a volunteer here in Caritas, then I became a resident. So you did one year there, and then you said you were a volunteer here. Before I started the residency, yeah. So what does a volunteer do? We don't have something like this in the United States. Yeah, I uh, I came here once when I, when I was intern for uh, one month, and then I uh, become a resident I, when they have uh, application for residency. So you're only a volunteer for one month? Yeah. Okay, and it was kind of a... You know, an engagement period or a time to see if you enjoyed pediatrics. Yeah. Did you want to be a doctor since the time where you were a young boy? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, My family doc- want to want to that uh, wanted me to become an engineer, but I <laughs> I like uh, I like medicine. I don't know the exact why, but I like hospital and doctors and treating with uh, the patients. Very good, and you seem to enjoy taking care of children better yeah. than anything else. Mm-hmm. And what year in residency are you? Um, in the second year. Second year. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Yam, uh, the founding of Caritas Baby Hospital, I understand, took place uh, shortly after the, the Nakba. Uh, I don't think most of our li- listeners know what the Nakba is. The Nakba is the first Israeli-Palestinian war and the period after that where Palestinians lost the land uh, here in Palestine and we had... Uh, we started having the occupation of the Israelis. So that was in 1948, and many Palestinians who had lived in what is now the country of Israel were forced out of their homes, their villages, sometimes with only minutes' notice. Um, Exactly. How awful that had to be for, were there, what, over a million refugees that had to move into what was then, well, it wasn't part of Jordan back then. Or was it just they had to move to the other side of the Jordan River, many of them? You know, part of them, they had to move here to the West Bank. They were uh, on the coast, living in Yaffa and Haifa. And uh, part of them, they moved here. Part of them, they went to Jordan. Okay. So they were scattered all over. And how is it that a Swiss priest became involved in starting this hospital? You know, this priest, he was working at uh, Caritas, uh, Germany. An association who takes care of refugees all over the world, and he had the job to come to Palestine and to look uh, for the refugees and see how uh, how they can support them as Caritas. Caritas is help, and he came here and he was really frustrated to see the conditions under which the refugees were uh, living. Uh, they were not, uh, and he was wondering in Bethlehem where Jesus Christ was born, yes. there is no help for uh, small children. So he decided to have a hospital where at least babies can be treated in Bethlehem. He rented a room, he called it Caritas Baby Hospital, and he put seven beds inside. And he started working on that with a doctor at that time, a Palestinian doctor. His name was Mr. Dabdu, and there was a nurse, her name was Hedwig. Yes. And together they started this hospital. But he worked hard hard to increase the size of this hospital and the bed numbers. And he moved after a while to, a, an, to an apartment where he put 25 beds. And luckily enough, he could build this hospital with the support of Vatican and a lot of people. And this was inaugurated in 1978. 1978, and has it grown since then? Yes, we had to expand twice after that time. And I understand, based on the little tour I received earlier today, that you're trying to expand your intensive care. Exactly. There is a great need for intensive uh, pediatric intensive care places in the West Bank, and we see that we have to. Uh, we are not able to take all the cases where uh, other hospitals try to refer to us. So we want to increase the number in order to to cover the demand. So does the entirety of the West Bank refer to you? Are you the referral hospital for the whole country of Palestine? Theoretically, yes. Also for Gaza. <coughs> Gaza is trying also to, to refer to us. But mostly we are covering the south, you know? Okay. Yeah. So, Hebron and the villages around Hebron and Bethlehem and the villages around Bethlehem. Very good. Uh, Dr. Iyad, or Iyad, I understand, and I even saw it on the outside of the, the hospital, uh, I, the motto of Caritas Baby Hospital is, we are here or we are there. Mm-hmm. What does that motto mean to you? 
Why is that the motto? Yeah, um, we are here. It's a world. We say to the patient and to the families who uh, here in uh, in Palestine in West Bank, and uh, the patient comes from Hebron. It means that we uh, we we are with you whenever uh, you need uh, help uh, and whatever the situation or the condition and uh, the religion. It's uh, it's our job to afford this to you. I understand that there is a, a shortage of medical care yeah. in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So that must be very reassuring to the people who, who live around here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What Growing up, what was the reputation of this hospital before you became a part of it? Yeah. Uh, Caritas is, uh, is known uh, with the, the, uh, the care. And, uh, you, you know, when, when the child is very ill, you only look for Caritas. In Hebron, we have this. And if, if your child is very sick and you, you need uh, help, the, the only thing is Caritas Hospital. It's good to be that yeah. place. <laughs> this is uh, Dr. Doctor, if you just turned in, coming to you from our first international interview in Palestine at Caritas Baby Hospital in Bethlehem. Dr. Hiam. There's over 3 million people now that live in the, the West Bank. So it's about between in the United States, about the size of the states of Iowa and, uh, and Connecticut. That, that's a huge area. How many children have you been able to help here, say on an annual basis? Yeah, the, the statistics of last year says that we helped uh, generally 49,000 patients. Uh, 4,600 were in the inpatient. Wow. Uh, yeah, they were admissions, and uh, 44,000 uh, were uh, in the outpatient. And has that been growing since your time here? Yes, yes. You can see it clearly if you compare 10 years ago. Yes. Uh, but in the last period of time, uh, it was growing. The average was uh, uh, 3,500, but now we are almost reaching uh, 5,000 for uh, the admissions. And the outpatient numbers are really uh, increasing dramatically. So in the last period of time, it was constantly increasing about 3,000 patients yearly. About how many physicians are seeing outpatients here each day? The average is around 150 patients per day. And how many physicians are taking care of these patients? You know, a lot of physicians in the sense we have two who are uh, seeing general pediatric yes. cases. But we have another six who are uh, specialized in one area in pediatrics. So they come once weekly or twice weekly, according to the uh -huh. number of their patients, and they see the patient. Where would these specialists normally practice? They would practice, you know, there are rare, there is a rare number or little number of specialized doctors. Yes. And uh, usually they work in one hospital, but they cover the outpatients in other hospitals. I see. So most of them are uh, working in the tertiary center uh, in Makassid Hospital. And where is that? This is in Jerusalem. Okay, so they're going back and forth through the... The West Bank. Yani, the I know one doctor, she's working here, she's working in Nablus, she's working in Ramallah, besides working <coughs> in Makassid, because she's one of the two pulmonologists in the area. And you need pulmonologists greatly. Of course, yes. We need much more subspecialists than we have. Which subspecialists do you need more? Uh, we need a pulmonologist, we need cardiologist, uh, endocrinologist. Every subspecialty we need because, you know, uh, most of the Palestinians who uh, studied outside and they got the training outside, they don't like to come back, which is something I can understand. The quality of life, the future perspective, uh, the payment is not as if you stay outside. And I understand you have children studying to be physicians? My children? Yes. My own children? Yes, I have two. And what do they want to become what do they want to become pediatricians or do you know you know till now they did not uh, decided yet but one of them is talking about ophthalmology ah. the other one is talking about orthopedics but you don't know uh, no you don't know and they're studying if, if they in, germany, in germany where you germany, did yes, yes you know i am a, a knight of the equestrian or the holy sepulcher our listeners might not know this but that means mm. our primary mission as an order is the support of christians in the holy land and in Indiana, where we tape from, we talk about having a brain drain, whereas the children 
go away to other areas after getting advanced degrees. Well, that's even more of a problem here in trying to convince young physicians to stay here where the living situations are difficult for everybody. Uh, has to be a challenge. So it's really remarkable the devotion you've given here. How many years have you been here, Dr. Yam? I am here since 1990 in this hospital. And how long have you been director? Since 2006. Wow, that is fantastic. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to you with more from Bethlehem on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from Bethlehem, Palestine, a Caridas Baby Hospital. And I have a question for Dr. Ayad. What are some of the most impressive aspects of Caritas Baby Hospital to you? What do they do particularly well? The outpatient clinics, along with the radiology department and the lab technicians, and all of this is available in one place. This is the, this is the important and the, the most impressive. And when you bring all this together and give something good to, to the patient. I saw the lab downstairs on my way in, and I understand that they are teaching their procedures to hospitals throughout the country. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, we, we have uh, many studies about uh, the blood cultures and uh, the percentage of failure and uh, the contamination. And we have the, 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 list, uh, the list percentage here in Caritas, and they're trying to, uh, to provide this to other hospitals. And I also understand that you have a program for mothers. Yeah, in the, in the mother residency, you mean uh, you, we have to uh, give lectures to the mothers to bring the care also at home, not, not only in the hospital. So we are sure that the mother giving the right thing. And I understand that the mothers you're lecturing to are sleeping overnight. Yeah, we have the, 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 here the residency department. Yes, I, I saw the outside of it upstairs. Mm -hmm. Was that something when you were growing up in Hebron that people really respected about the hospital, that the mothers could stay there? Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you need the mother to, keep, to, to be with the child. First of all, that the child will be more uh, comfortable. And the second thing, uh, the mother will, will know what, what we do to the child and uh, to, to learn more about the care of the child uh, in future. Is it easier to take care of children when the mother is present? Yeah. And when they are not present. Yeah. yeah. When the mother is here, it's much more. You can uh, we can be uh, more comfortable with the child. He's not uh, irritable and uh, yeah. Did your mother ever spend the night here? I don't think no. No. Mm -hmm. She was fortunate to not have kids that were that sick. <laughs> Doctor Iam, you have a number of specialty clinics here. What are the most common, difficult to treat classes of diseases that you have? You know, the most difficult are the cases with genetic disorders. And if you put the diagnosis and you know this is a hopeless case, the patient cannot live long, this is very difficult for us physicians and for the nurses as well. But I understand that you provide a type of even hospice care so that there is a, you know, a dignified way to look at the even short life that the child might have. How do you do that? You know, we are unique in the, in the sense that we look at the baby in a holistic way and we try to support the baby, his mother, his family. So we take them with us on the way through this illness. They are informed from the beginning about the baby. Uh, the team is informed and we try to support them uh, psychologically also with our social workers and uh, support them uh, as long the baby is, is living. Now, do you bring in spiritual help? <clears throat> like, would there be, uh, for you know, most of the patients are Muslim, do they have people from their mosques, or I, I don't know what you would call them, if they're being imam, do you bring in people, and then on the Christian side, do you bring in pre priests or pastors? You know, we don't bring them uh, to the hospital, uh, just in a few cases. We rely, in this case, uh, on the family. Like when I talk to a mother who's uh, suffering beside yes. the baby, I tell her, uh, you can pray, pray for the baby. So she will have the Quran and she will pray. If she likes to bring an imam from the village, the issue, she would do that. The same is with Christian families. You know, we try to have in our ethic commission, one priest from the Christian side and one imam from the ah, Muslim side. Good. But we felt that the 
the families uh, trust their own. Yes, of course. So usually they bring their own with. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. What are the most common diseases, uh, Dr. Ayad, that uh, you take care of here at the hospital? Uh, most of them are uh, respiratory-wise, the bronchitis. We have many of ch- of children presenting with the cough and difficulty of breathing, and a lot of them needs admission and uh, a few maybe uh, the ICU care. And uh, we give here uh, the the best, and we try to uh, make him healthy as soon as possible. Also, we have uh, cases like uh, gastroenteritis. Yes. We have many cases. And dehydration, so we, we, we have to uh, look for uh, good rehydration, and if it's possible at home, we can give. If it's not, we can admit and uh, give the management here at the hospital. So are you good at inserting IVs? Yeah, we are. Uh, <laughs> we, are we have, yeah. And you can even do it uh, in the head or in the foot or... Yeah, we we have we have the help here with nursing. We okay. Uh, yeah. That always impressed me yeah. when when the pediatricians mm-hmm. could do that. Mm-hmm. Right now, you have what an eighty-two bed hospital. How many of those are intensive care? Uh, we have now uh, two uh, pediatric intensive places and five neonates. And I understand you're getting another bed soon. Yeah, another bed soon, and at the end of the year another bed. So we are increasing this year two beds. I heard the story of a remarkable baby that was given no chance to live at any other hospital in the country, even before the baby was born. Can you tell us about that case? Yeah, this was a baby with 700 grams. And usually, it is difficult for babies in uh, this category to survive. Usually, when we take patients from other hospitals, we say the limit is one kilo. But this baby was refused from other hospitals, so we had to take him. And uh, he was given the chance to survive, and he did very well. And that baby was not born here because this is a pediatric hospital. So how far away was the baby born? He was born in Holy Family. Holy Family. It's not far away. It's no, I have visited yeah, there before. Yeah. And they have a large neonatal intensive care unit. Exactly. So 700 grams is, what, about one and a half pounds. And how many weeks old was the baby? He was almost two months. Mm-hmm. See, and I, I just really admire the fact that you gave the mom a chance. I mean, what does this mom think now? She appreciates it a lot. And when we discharged the baby, we did something like a party. Oh, sure. Because it was a success story for all of us. And we enjoyed, you know, every time I went to the section and the nurse was telling me, now he is one kilo. Now he is <laughs> 1.2 kilo. So we were happy about every gram he was gaining and he, that he was doing well. And how old is that baby now? It, uh, he must be... Two and a half. Two and a half, huh? Mm-hmm. Two and a half. Years? M- months. Months. Two and a half months. So just past just, his due yeah, date. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's beautiful. Another story I read about on your website dealt with uh, a young, I think it was a girl who needed heart surgery. Is there a place in the West Bank where you can have West heart surgery? Yes, there is in Makassid Hospital, this hospital which I mentioned. But you still have to but, go through the checkpoints. Yes. So what were the logistics like of getting the baby through the, the checkpoints? You know, it was it was difficult years before or, or uh, last year, but it became better. You know, uh, in the past we were uh, having two ambulances involved in the referral of the patient. One ambulance came from Bethlehem and he took the baby to the checkpoint, and the other ambulance came from uh, Jerusalem, and we had to put the baby from one ambulance to the other, back to back we call it. But in the last year, it was very good that the ambulance from Jerusalem, he could come inside oh, good. and transfer the baby in one ambulance. This is really a great relief for us. Yeah. For us in the United States, it's crazy to think that for something a few miles away, you would have to do something so convoluted. I'm glad to hear that it's become simplified, that they recognize the dignity and the need of the patient. Exactly. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from Bethlehem, Palestine, Caritas Baby Hospital. Uh, Dr. Ayad, this is a, a teaching hospital. So how many residents are there and how long is the residency program? 
Yeah, here we are uh, almost uh, 10 uh, residents, half, uh, half of them on the residency program. And the residency here almost two, two years, two and a half years. And then do you get a, do you have a, a board certification? That's what we call it. You take a test to, to prove that you know how to be a pediatrician? Yeah, we, uh, the first year we did the part one. Okay. We, did, we, we call it the part one. And uh, when we finished the, the fourth year, the second part. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's after medical school. Uh, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. and then you can be a board-certified pediatrician. Doctor, yes. If you want to subspecialize, what would you have to do? Then we have to apply in the Ministry of Health or to look for uh, direct the hospital that uh, that provide the subspecialty. And are there any in Palestine that have subspecialty training? Uh, not. Uh, not many, but few, and uh, the, the specialty, the subspecialty, mainly it's surgical and, and surgery. Because I noticed there are no operating rooms here, are there? In, no, in the hospital we don't have uh, surgery. Yeah. So where do they go if they need surgery? We uh, we arrange for them. Uh, we look for the uh, the, the near uh, hospital that provide what we need and uh, the surgery. Maybe a Mukazid hospital in Jerusalem, and if they don't have, we will arrange in Israel. Very good. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hiam, you don't have health insurance here as we know it in the United States, yet you don't turn anybody away. How do you pay for it? How do these patients pay for it? How do you stay alive financially? You know, we have the Children's Relief Bethlehem. This is an association who is collecting the funds for us in Germany, Switzerland, uh, Italy, and there is a small office in uh, Vienna and England. Uh, thanks to them, it, we could survive the last, uh, the last years. And uh, the problem is the poverty is high here, yes. and we are uh, putting low prices for the patients. We don't do it for free to, uh, to provide the dignity. Dignity so, is important. Is important, exactly. So uh, for the admissions, uh, i give you an example. They pay only 10% of the real costs. We ask them for 10% of the real costs. So the one night is around uh, $30. But 50% can afford paying that only. In the outpatient, most of them they can pay because uh, the costs are symbolic. Uh, as example, four uh, euro, four uh, no five dollars for uh, ch being checked up, uh, or four dollars for ultrasound. The prices are low, so the, most of the people can afford it. So we calculated once and saw that the income of the patients yes. is only five percent. Ninety-five percent we are living from donations. Wow! So when you said thirty dollars a night, is that the 10%? The 10% of the real cost. So the real cost is about $300 About a night. $300. I still think you should come over to the United States and start a hospital because no hospital is that inexpensive in the United States. So you, you are remarkably uh, running this uh, inexpensively. Exactly. But here we, ha we have our worries because we are living from donations. Yes. And every year we have to worry, do we gather this donation or not? So it's, it's, it's a lot of work uh, to, to do. And you that. have to rely on God that he's going exactly. to provide. Exactly. Uh, but when you have that attitude, I think you have more solidarity with the patients. And, and they must notice that because in the United States, it has become more of a business there are for-profit hospitals that are earning money for shareholders that invest in hospitals. And that's always struck me as, as being almost inhumane, as yeah. being wrong. And as last questions. What I want to know, Dr. Uh, Iyad, what gives you the greatest joy in working at Caritas Baby Hospital? What makes you the happiest? Well, uh, to be part of this uh, Hospital is, uh, is a great joy and uh, I'm very happy that I can uh, care with the children and uh, know and you are doing something is very, very, uh, very good. And, yeah. and Dr. Iam, the same with you. You've done this for, what, 28 years since you've been here? What drives you? Why is this so important to you? How does this fulfill you? You know, uh, during my study, I did my practica all in this hospital, and it has always impressed me 
uh, how uh, helpful this this uh, hospital uh, for the people. I cannot imagine this area without this hospital. You know, in a in a, an area where you have poverty, the insurance is uh, is too expensive for the people, and uh, few of them are insured, and they get the best. A standard of medical care. They get ICU care. They get everything yes. with little cost. So uh, this is very impressive. And the humanity, the spirit in this hospital is unique. You know, you care about the patient as if he's your son or daughter. Yes. Uh, everybody, the atmosphere, I should say, is, is uh, really unique in this hospital. If our listeners want to help support Caritas Baby Hospital, how can they do that? You know, uh, I have to say it frankly, through talking about us and through money. This is uh, the way you can help uh, Caritas with the hospital. Well, Dr. Hiam, Dr. Iyad, thank you very much for being here um, on Dr. Doctor, our medical radio show, and God bless you both. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from the Redeemer Radio Studios. Here we are in segment number four, which means we start with the answer to today's trivia question, which is, while The Wind in the Willows is a children's book published over 100 years ago in 1908, something other than wind has been found in willows and used for over 2,000 years as a medication and was started to be marketed widely over 100 years ago. A form of this medication accounts for over 44,000 tons of pills taken annually by people worldwide. What is this medication? You know, Tom, you a lot of times you come up with ones that are really tough, but I actually know this one. All right, and Andrew. I, and I do take because my thunder. What's the answer? I've got people that come in to the office sometimes taking natural supplements, and one of them I've seen is willow bark. Ah. And we actually, I some some years ago, I had a patient in the hospital who became anemic and nearly bled to death, actually, by <gasps> taking too much willow bark. Really made them anemic because they were bleeding more easily. So that's a hint to the listeners. This medication makes you bleed easily, and it is, Andrew. Aspirin. Aspirin. Acetyl salicylic aspirin. That's pretty good. So uh, I've heard it said by a number of physicians that if they were stuck on a desert island and had one medicine to bring with them, it would be aspirin. Aspirin would not be a bad choice because it's got so many uses. Well, I remember classically in medical school learning about four different uses of aspirin. It will thin the blood. It will help with pain. It will reduce inflammation. And it will reduce fevers. So it has those four things, whereas you know acetaminophen only does two of those. Or maybe even one, depending on who you ask. Really? Yep. They Actually, it was very interesting. Tangential note here. There's a study done last year that I it took me by surprise that a placebo sugar pill beat out Tylenol for back pain. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it's not, it doesn't even help with pain? So it, it can help with pain, but I usually recommend it in unison with ibuprofen and Ibuprofen and Tylenol together, yes, they work really well, even better than opioids yes. by, by many studies. However, Tylenol alone, unless you're limited. Now, there's a lot of people, especially pregnant yes. ladies and folks with kidney disease, they, they are limited to Tylenol. So it's got some benefits, but marginal. I usually tell folks it's primarily a fever reducer and uh, then an adjuvant to, to NSAID medicines like ibuprofen. Wow. Well, if, met, if aspirin is that good. Should everybody be on it, Andrew? It it depends. Like everything, it depends. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people should be on it. It definitely, as we've kind of discussed a little bit before, it reduces the risk of heart attacks and strokes for folks, especially at higher risk. But it's recommended for, for guys over 45 and women over 55, just carte blanche. Everybody should be taking it is, is what the, the general recommendation is. I think we can tailor it a little bit more than that, but it definitely is very effective at preventing common causes of death. And is more better? Is more better? Good question. Probably not. Usually, actually, less aspirin is better. Yes. It depends what you're treating, but the higher you go on aspirin, you don't get that many more benefits, and you usually get more side effects like bleeding. Right. I understand that even the so-called coated aspirins really don't have a reduction in, uh, in bleeding from in the gastrointestinal tract. The thought is, is that it might make it through the stomach before, before it gets absorbed. 
but it is absorbed systemically. So if you were prone to bleeding, it, it would still have that side effect on the stomach. So the thought is that it would be better, but I, I don't believe that holds out in practice. I was amazed because when I was young, aspirin was really promoted to take for a number of things, including fever. And in fact, until I was in medical school, or even after medical school, that was the most common thing I took for headaches and fevers. And then it radically changed. It seemed like there was a big PR move throughout medicine to reduce how much aspirin is taken, yet 44,000 tons of it a year in the world? It, it depends. You know, one of the, I, I see a lot of kids in my practice, and one of the things we're always worried about is raised disease. Right. And that's with a, the liver. A, with the liver. Kids, if, if you're younger than 16, you can have pretty significant side effects from taking aspirin. So after you're older, it's, it's not a bad call, and it, it's a pretty good medicine. I, I have a lot of patients that I'd say are above middle age that aspirin has always been their go-to. But especially for kids, I, I usually recommend moving towards one of the other medicines. You know, and I found online uh, an old Reader's Digest article that gave 10 unusual uses for aspirin. Ooh. I found this Remarkable. So this is a little doctor-doctor bonus. <laughs> Apparently, you'll have to check with the website, but it can revive dead car batteries, remove those nasty perspiration stains in the underarms, restore hair color, dry up pimples. And, and the truth to that is that salicylic acid is a weak anti-acne medication. Really? Right. So that's also why it can be used to treat hard calluses. But there's actually better forms of salicylic acid that, uh, as opposed to acetyl salicylic acid that you can buy over the counter that are made into plasters or liquids that you can put on hard calluses or warts. And, and that's the same thing with controlling dandruff. And, and this would be you'd have to break it down into a powder and put it on the hair. You wouldn't take it by mouth. But uh, a number of other things helps cut flowers last longer a garden aid, and removing egg stains from clothes. So that was your doctor, doctor extra today. Hopefully we don't get complaints from hints from Heloise or other such <laughs> writers. I love it. So, Andrew, we did something a little bit different today with our uh, show. So we didn't have the preventive health care tip of the day, but if we can go through this uh, we can get it in now for our listeners. Hey, I love it. You know, I always love coming back with our preventative tips from the USPSTF. And today's actually a little bit more of a straightforward one, but something that I, I think is worth thinking about. This actually just came out in September of 2017, so it's a newer recommendation. Good. And this is related to vision screening in children. So it is recommended by the USPSTF that vision screening is completed at least once for children ages three to five years old to detect amblyopia or its risk factors. And amblyopia would be? That's built into my first part. Good. My first, what do you need to know? Top three things. Amblyopia is really vision reduction in one eye because the eye and the brain are not working properly together. Right. So-called lazy eye. Lazy eye is the other term for it. And it can be from several things. It could be from a, a physical defect of the eye, such as a cataract, you can't see through it. Could be from a neurologic problem where maybe the, the eyes don't line up well. And it could be as simple as the, the lens is out of focus, uh, common for people who just need glasses. Sure. But if this persists and it's not corrected, kids can develop permanent vision problems because they, they did not have it corrected. So the goal with all screening things, we don't screen for things that we can't fix. But if we can fix something and we catch it early enough, those are the things that we screen for that if we did not catch it, it, w it would have more consequences. Because that eye could go blind and not be able to see if it's not treated early. Precisely. And if we treat it early, the, the corollary would be that somebody could have normal vision that otherwise may not have. So was that your first tip? Y you know, that's, that's the meaty part of it. I, I would also add for my first tip that, you know, vision is important for the whole development of children. And really up at about three months of age is when you see kids first being able to, to fix their eyes on something and follow it, usually across midline. Abnormal vision, though, can lead not only to visual problems, which is obvious, but other motor delays and really delays in development throughout. So it's a very important thing to look for. I, I'd also like to add for my second point that parents usually are the ones who notice vision problems before doctors. Uh, a child may hold toys close to their eyes to examine them. 
They may be squinting all the time, or the eyes may wander occasionally, even the eyelids drooping. Those are things that could affect the vision that, you know, when I get to see the patient for a brief office visit, the, the patient may not be demonstrating any of that, but parents, if they can relay that to the doctor, that is really an important thing. And that's why, especially before three years old, visual behavior rather than visual acuity is assessed. Ah. Visual acuity is we're trying to see how well you see, how, how good your vision is. But when they're really young, we really look for normal versus abnormal based on their behavior. And so the, the, the last tip that I have is that many of these causes can, in fact, be treated. They, they have instrument testing that can be available as young as 12 months of age. It's not widely available, but many, many eye doctors have it. Primary care physicians usually do not. We rely on the good old eye chart. Yes. And everybody can envision that with the big E at the top. And nobody memorizes anything past the E. (laughs) And so this is something that I work in to my five-year-old well check. And it's usually mandated for kids before they go to kindergarten. We have to fill out school physical forms, and they're going to request that. Frequently, they request it every year, but especially before kindergarten, it's recommended. And I think actually even legislated many places that the eyes need to be examined at that age. So if they have not been already, have your children's eyes examined between three and five years old. That's excellent advice. This has been a fun show. I hope you've enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Wally signing off until next time. And so please remember that your medical decisions today can have profound consequences. So please, choose wisely. Choose Catholic. To learn more about Caritas Baby Hospital or donate to support their mission, visit childrens-relief-bethlehem.org or facebook.com slash cbhbethlehem. On the next episode of Dr. Doctor, we'll hear from Dr. George Delgado about his groundbreaking work on abortion pill reversal methods and how women and babies are being given a second chance at life. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 and find past episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.